You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Podcast. I am your host Brad Roland, and today we will have a sort of a special edition of the uh, podcast. It is uh, Sunday night on Labor Day weekend. As I record this, uh, you will be stuck with just me today, but that is only because it is, of course, Labor Day weekend, and uh, I'm going to give the entire Talking Chop staff and any other guests that I would normally have on this particular day the uh, the week off to enjoy. Uh, baseball to enjoy their families, a little bit of a break and all that stuff. I'm hoping that you'll be listening to this uh, in a comfortable spot, you know, whether it be at a lake somewhere or at a barbecue, something like that on Labor Day. It's going to go up on Labor Day morning, so uh, consider this a special edition, sort of a Labor Day uh, mailbag episode. Um, There is a little bit of news to take care of, but uh, aside from that, mostly just going to be feedback from you, the listener, and uh, hopefully I will do my best in order to break down some of the latest for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, first off, I have to kick off uh, this podcast with a breakdown of the uh, the recent performance of the Atlanta Braves, and that is that the team has won six straight games. Um, granted, those wins came against the San Diego Padres and the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, two of the uh, less inspiring teams in Major League Baseball, but at the same time, the Braves are definitely rolling as you hear this podcast. Uh, if you listen to at least uh, between Sunday and Monday, you'll definitely feel that way. Uh, you know, in the midst of that six-game streak, there's been a lot of good things for the Braves on the field. The highlight, personally, for me was Matt Whistler striking out 10 batters in six innings while sort of dominating the Padres earlier in the week. Uh, also, Julio Tehran was outstanding on Sunday afternoon with six shot innings in his own right and another victory. Um, again, you know, it's not necessarily been the most fun season to watch from a fan perspective. We're talking about the Major League Club. But uh, they're definitely playing, you know, some of the best baseball of the season right now, and that is uh, that's fun. Uh, you know, there there are, there are some downsides. We'll touch on that in a second. But it's uh, it's certainly more pleasurable to watch this team win than watch this team lose. Um, I do have to say though, the Braves are uh, sort of doing themselves a disservice in one aspect, and that is what the number one pick pursuit uh, for a long time it looked as if the Braves were going to have the very the very inside track on getting the number one pick in the draft for next year. But right now, at the time of this recording, the Braves now actually trail, and I put that in quotation marks, they trail the Minnesota Twins by three games, meaning that Minnesota is the worst team in the league by record by a three-game margin after this latest streak from the Braves and uh, sort of uh, some some pretty woeful performances from the Twins. They kind of have the right idea of the tank uh, for those those of you in the fan base that are really rooting hard for the Braves to finish with the worst record in the league. Minnesota is really doing a uh, what I would call yeoman's work in terms of uh, 
seeking that uh, particular designation. So I think the Twins are going to be hard to catch in this regard, and the Braves are playing so much better now and that uh, that it's kind of hard for me to believe that they're going to be able to overtake Minnesota in that pursuit. But look, listen, having the number two pick is not a, not a bad thing at all, I should say. Uh, most most of the time, the difference between number one, number one and number two is pretty small. It's still early to talk about this next uh, college and high school class in terms of the draft but you know lately most of the time uh, the difference is not terribly huge unless you're talking about a guy like Bryce Harper or Steven Strasburg being available and outside of those guys it's been pretty open uh, all respect to Dansby Swanson but he was not head and shoulders above everyone else in his class uh, most recently so um, be, the Braves are probably going to be picking in the top three so there's nothing really to worry about there but if you uh, had your heart set on the number one pick your dreams have probably been dashed a little bit uh, in the recent past. Uh, you know, most of this show, as I said at the top, is going to be a mailbag portion, and I want to kick things off with one question that's going to lead into a big news item as well. Uh, it comes from Blade, from Blake Ryaner. I probably got that wrong on Twitter. I'm the worst uh, pronunciation person in the world, but, but alas, I gave it a shot. He asks, uh, what is the likeliest position that Tim Tebow will play in SunTrust Park next season? Will he be a corner outfielder? Um, this is, I'm assuming, done with tongue-in-cheek, and that's uh, that's well done um, from from whoever wrote this question in. But at the same time, we do need to address the Tim Tebow issue. Um, multiple multiple reports are uh, sort of indicating now that the Braves are, have emerged as something of a leader in the Tebow pursuit. This doesn't really come as a shock to me, given how the organization looks to capitalize on value. Uh, you know, obviously, this is not baseball value. If you're looking at a guy at Tebow's age, there's basically no chance that he becomes a legitimate major league asset in terms of actual baseball value, but he would provide some real business value, some uh, some money making potential in the minor leagues. Um, minor league baseball is kind of uh, famous for having these these shameless promotions to the tune of uh, just some crazy things to just get people people in the seats. And with a guy like Tebow, you don't really have to do that. He himself is the promotion. So the Braves really want to uh, you know increase their bottom line in the minor leagues wherever they decide to send him if they were to sign him. That would be an easy way to do that. There's no real downside to me uh, if the Braves, if, if, for the Braves signing Tebow, if you can see past the uh, the sheer annoyance of having to hear about Tebow on a daily basis. Uh, it's it's sort of a positive thing in that business and that marketing portion that I talked about a little bit earlier. If they, if they decide to pull the trigger, I wouldn't do it honestly. Um, if I'm honest about it, it's something that I'm not particularly interested in. A story that I'm not really interested in at all. But you could probably talk me into it being a distraction. If you're looking for a negative, uh, that's probably the only way you can spin it for me. Is if you talked about it being a distraction for the, some of the young, some of the young guys in the system, sort of player development aspect. The Braves have uh, placed a real premium on the player development aspect of things and sort of investing in the draft internationally lately. And if you have a guy like Tebow even around, to sort of be in the way of those prospects, I could see that being some somewhat of a downside. Uh, I'm definitely not outraged by this in a way that a lot of Braves fans are. A lot of Braves fans have really been screaming at me and at Talking Chop on Twitter and on Facebook and those kind of things, talking about how much they don't want Tebow. I get that, especially for a lot of people who are in and around Georgia and really rooted against him in college football, etc. But uh, Tebow's a good guy, a good guy to have around just from the influence perspective. The problem is, is that the circus becomes uh, probably, you know, almost certainly more than it's actually worth. The bottom line would be good for the Braves in terms of the minor leagues. That could help them pay for some other things within the organization. But I definitely understand why you wouldn't want Tebow. I just want people to understand that it's not the, not, not the end of the world that the Braves actually do this. I can't imagine it's going to actually impact 
um, anything in terms of baseball. Um, the, the, the original question about Tebow playing in the outfield next year at Central Park is a funny one to consider. There's a 0% chance of that actually happening. If anybody out there was somehow worried about this, this is not going to happen. They're not going to have him in the, in the major leagues if they sign him. He'll probably be in some rookie ball, some low-A stuff, in a, uh, just to kind of make a buck and get some publicity and maybe just try out his tools, potentially even trade him down the line. Something that Copy has you know, famously done. I can't imagine the market for Tebow is going to be Huge unless he lights the world on fire, but again, this is something not not to terribly worry about in my opinion. And from there, we can kind of pivot away from the Tebow madness and onto actual baseball talk. Um, first question, other than Tebow, comes from at Big Greg V on Twitter, and he basically asks for the long-term thoughts on Tuki Toussaint. Uh, Tuki has a sub-4 ERA this year with almost a strikeout per inning. But, of course, his walk rate is uh, concerning. If you followed him uh, at all during his minor league career briefly, uh, control has been, a, has been an issue for Tukey. He's walking 4.87 per nine this season. That's obviously too high at any level, especially at a level that he's at right now. But uh, on the bright side, Tukey's been a guy who I really like for a long time, since, really since the Braves acquired him and I started to uh, kind of dive into his work. He's still only 20 years old. The raw stuff is absolutely outstanding. Uh, there is a long way to go with Tukey, so that's something I have to say. The trade was obviously an awesome one for the Braves, essentially just buying buying Tukey from Arizona in exchange for a contract that nobody really cared about. Uh, that was sort of the throw-in and something the Braves did in order to uh, maximize uh, money as an asset and a way to get a top-tier prospect. That was a great move. Um, but even with the caveat that I really like Tukey, I think there's at least at least a chance that he kind of flames out. Um, obviously, he has a top-tier arm. I think that's pretty clear. But uh, he's raw enough and young enough to where it's very risky. I think we uh, I'd be talking chop guys had him uh, inside the top ten of the organization's prospects in that uh, mid-July update they did. Uh, you know, I guess that's you know six weeks ago now. But Tuki was inside the top ten, but a guy who is uh, certainly volatile. Um, the upside is extremely high. I think he's one of the few guys in the, in the organization that actually has number one upside if everything came together in a perfect way. He has at least two or three. Um, plus pitches, and obviously with his uh, his power, you know, constantly reaching into the mid-90s, occasionally high 90s with his fastball, that's a very impressive uh, collection of offerings that he can bring to the table. So 20 years old is a long way away, but I'm very, very high on Tukey still now. Uh, next question is actually kind of funny because of where it comes from. It came from our very own Scott Coleman, uh, who decided to ask this question on Twitter rather than texting me or simply messaging me. Shout out to Scott a frequent guest on this program. Uh, he basically asked me, uh, what should the Braves do with uh, Jace Peterson next year? Uh, Peterson's a guy I've always liked, I've always enjoyed, and that's kind of been clear on the podcast, but also a guy that uh, really has a, an issue with what what's going to happen with his career moving forward. Uh, he, entered, he entered the day on Sunday with a 98 WRC plus for the season, so he's basically been a, a league average hitter, which is just fine. Uh, 354 on base percentage for the year and 330 plate appearances is pretty darn good considering uh, where he normally plays up the middle uh, defensively. Uh, the power has always been the question for for Jace. He's definitely a great athlete and a guy who should who should if you looked at his body be able to hit for power, but it's not really come in the way that people might thought that it might. He has, still has a 373 slugging this year, which isn't atrocious by any measure, but not not great. Um, certainly, I've always been a fan again of his, but he's 26 years old. He's probably never going to be able to hit anywhere uh, near enough to be a full-time player, unless he's playing somewhere like second base. Um, and obviously, that's that's a position where Ozzy Albies is going to be the uh, 
really the heir apparent in the next uh, year at the longest, potentially even less than that for all, for Ozzy. So I think Jace, you know, he had that full almost full season of where he was playing second base and did an adequate job and was a very good defensive player there. But I think his ultimate destiny, if you're going to ask me, is to go really into a role where he is a, a super utility player, a guy who could play the outfield capably. I think if you had him on the roster, you could carry four outfielders and kind of use Peterson as the fifth guy. He's super duper athletic again, multi-sport athlete. That was one of his uh, calling cards as a prospect uh, was that the fact that he could certainly mature into more than he was uh, as a tools guy just because he is uh, very, very athletic and long and has a good uh, good body for really a number of different things. So he can play some outfield for you. He can capably second play second base defensively. He's pretty good there. I think he probably could play some adequate shortstop. He's done that occasionally even third base. So if you could play six spots on the diamond effectively, there's a spot for you, especially given that Jace can hit enough to be a functional a functional major league baseball player. I, I think about Daniel Daniel Castro as a guy who's been around this team this year. The, you know, the 2016 season is kind of an asterisk one in that the Braves aren't competing, but Castro has been up uh, a few different times. And he's a guy that we absolutely know cannot hit at the major league level. But even that, uh, with, with his versatility defensively on the infield and him being an above average, above average defender, kind of allowed him to make some make some hay in the major leagues. And, I was, you know, Peterson's a better player than that, better prospect than that, better talent all, all the way across the board. But I think uh, a super utility role is probably the best way to use Peterson moving forward. It's just kind of difficult to pin that down, not knowing what the rest of the roster is going to look like as soon as next season. The next question I got comes from uh, Ricky Day on Twitter, and this is sort of a throwback question that doesn't really deal with the 2016 Atlanta Braves, but more of a historical question. He asks, why is Bob Horner not in the Braves Hall of Fame? For those who don't know who Bob Horner is, if you're very young, uh, obviously this is somebody you wouldn't know necessarily unless you were trying to study old, old older Braves history. Uh, Horner played in Atlanta for nine seasons. He hit 215 home runs, posted a 508 career slugging percentage in Atlanta, which is outstanding. Uh, those are obviously good numbers, uh, but at, at the same time, for comparison's sake, he's only 33rd all-time in Fangraph's version of war for Braves position players. That trails guys like David Justice, uh, Daryl Evans, Rico Cardi, even Brian McCann and Jason Hayward. Uh, so that's not exactly a, a, a resume that I think is a no-doubt uh, inclusion in, to, in terms of the Braves Hall of Fame. There are guys in the Hall of Fame right now who haven't necessarily been, uh, you know, Hall of Fame level players in the minds of everyone. I think I think of Javi Lopez who's in the Hall of Fame for the Braves right now. Um, so standards are not exactly as high as they would be for Cooperstown or anything like that. So Bob Horner could you could talk me into into including him, but the era in which he played was not a great one for the Braves. Uh, outside of uh, a few a few characters here and there, it was not a fantastic overall time to be a member of the Atlanta Braves organization terms of uh, on-field success, so Horner probably gets penalized for that. Still one of the, you know, one of the probably you know, 30, 40 best players in Braves history, and there's nothing wrong with that in terms of the Atlanta portion, but not exactly a resume that I would say is a slam-dunk inclusion. That's something that the Braves could potentially look at doing down the line if they're looking at a season in which there's nobody obvious to induct. Lately, there's been a lot of obvious inclusions. This, this year was Sherholtz and Andrew Jones. We did a whole podcast on that. If you want to go back and listen to that and the rationale behind those two guys being inducted. At some point, there's probably going to be a year where the Braves don't have that obvious candidate, and that could be a spot where they look at a guy like Bob Horner, bring him back, and sort of induct him uh, into the Hall of Fame in a way to uh, sort of refresh people's memories or even just place that, that memory in people's heads of a, young, of a younger crowd of what Bob Horner was as a very, very good Major League Baseball player and a good, a good member of the Atlanta Braves. 
Getting back into the uh, more 2016, 2017, and beyond um, segment of the of the program, as I uh, I guess I should say, the next question has to do with my favorite character to discuss. His name is Dick Markakis. The question comes from Ryan Lottinger, who asks, "Has Nick Markakis played uh, played his essentially played his way back into the uh, a, a, back into a chance of staying put with the organization, given the, his strong play after the All Star break?" And with that, he asks, is, is, could Malik Smith be a fourth outfielder next season? Uh, I think Markekis has been much better, obviously, in the second half of the season. But at the same time, he only posts a, a 112 WRC+, plus with the caveat that's a, uh, they also bring as a very arbitrary endpoint, but it's still one that people use, so we'll use it here. Um, that's, definitely very, that's definitely acceptable, and you know, I would say good. That's above average. Um, and I think he, in the overall specter, he's uh, he's sort of earned that contract for this year. He's only making eleven million dollars. Eleven million dollars is a lot of money, but in terms of actual value, in terms of by win, if you go by the WAR statistic, Markekis is probably going to earn that unless he dies at the end of the season um, in, that, in this last month or so. But at, at the same time, you know, a one twelve WRC plus with below average defense is not lighting the world on fire in the second half of the season. He has hit the ball quite well, and I've never never said that Markekis was a below-average offensive player. I think he's a perfectly fine offensive contributor. The power is lacking. That's not a secret uh, to anyone who's been paying attention, but Markekis has hit for more power this year, so that's a step up. His play discipline's always been very good. He's a guy who can hit for average, be functional, um, not a good, not a great base runner, not a terrible one, not a not a terrible defender. I shouldn't say that about Markekis. He's not a bad defender. It's just the lack of range that really hurts him in the minds of uh, people who really care about that kind of stat. The glove concerns uh, overall continue for me. And I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I don't think that he and Matt Kemp are a great fit together to have in the two corner spots. Matt Kemp is making a lot of money for a, for a number of years here, so I think it's pretty safe to assume that he's going to be around. And you know, defensively, I know you have Ender Enciarte in center field who's tremendous, but at some point you don't want to have two statuesque guys in left and right field defensively, which are, which is a problem. And even even if you were okay with that. I don't think you want Markakis' uh, lack of power in right field, which is normally a power position uh, long term, especially when he's not particularly awesome at any other, any, other, any other part of the game. As for Malik's being a fourth outfielder, that's perfectly reasonable in my mind. I still don't think Markakis would be on this team next year uh, if you uh, held a gun to my head and asked me to pick if he would be, but it wouldn't shock me if he was, and if, if he is, and and Enciarte and, and Kemp stay around, you're going to see Markakis in the lineup more often than not, which means that Malix is going to be a fourth outfielder. A lot of people, uh, including my old co-host Carlos Colazzo, have kind of thought of Malix as a long-term fourth outfielder because of his... Uh, you know his lack of bat upside. I think you know he can get on base at a high rate uh, in the uh, in the future, considering his uh, speed. If he can take full advantage of that and just be able to uh, sort of become a slap hitter that can get on base, uh, sacrifice whatever power that he actually could have. I don't want to, I don't want to see that with, with him anyway. But if he can turn himself into a high OBP guy who can just get on base, run like crazy, and defend at a high level, that'll be a nice player. But that that really only works uh, to the maximum heights if he's playing center field. Uh, because, you know, in the corners, again, you want power, and Malix is not going to bring it. So Malix and Enciarte is not a pairing that I want really long-term unless I can have power really everywhere else in the lineup. So Malix as a fourth outfielder can definitely work. I, I, could, I could all see him get traded. I could see Enciarte get sold high on here in the next year or so if the Braves want to hand the reins over to Malix. There's a lot of uh, possibilities, I would say, over the next year, year and a half or so. But Marquecas could be on this team, and I don't... I don't 
ever really think that uh, that changed. I think it probably helped his case a little bit that he's hit the ball well after the All-Star break, but it was always a possibility that Marquez was going to be on this team because of the fact that he's owed some money left. I mean, you, the Hawks, the Braves are not going to give him away. They're just not. I don't think they have any interest in doing that or really paying a, a huge chunk of his salary just to give him away, even to a team like Baltimore who could be interested in his services in sort of a going-home aspect. So I think Marquez is going to be around, uh, if you uh, ask me to pick, you know, off-season, I would say no. He'll be here the rest of this year. Uh, we'll see what happens. The Braves, a lot of possibilities wide open, and a lot of it could have to do with free agency as well. If the Braves explore the outfield market, then they're going to have to part ways with Marqueca because there's just nowhere, nowhere else to put a guy in the outfield and free agency or if there's a big trade on the horizon. So very, very fluid situation, and that's not going to change until something big happens via trade, in my view. And the penultimate question of the podcast comes from AlexBurke08 on Twitter, and he asks me, do the Braves actively seek a young third baseman in the offseason, or do they believe that Demerit and Ruiz are the real deal? Uh, first of all, let me say that Demerit can't really be in the plans for 2017, in my opinion, given his age uh, and really his relative proximate, proximity to the big leagues. Uh, he's only 21 years old. Demerit was still playing in single A right now, so it would be pretty shocking if he made the jump to the big leagues, at least at the beginning of the next season. Uh, he's not that young, obviously, because we're talking about a guy like Ozzy Albies, who's still 19, and talking about you know, making a run to the uh, the big leagues potentially, but Demerit's not not ever really been playing close enough. Uh, I, you, obviously, you want to see a guy play probably some double-A ball at the very least before he's ever in the big leagues, and Demerit's raw power is intriguing, but he does have some holes that you want to get to uh, get fixed before he can uh, really ascend to the major league level. That, that strikeout rate is definitely going to be problematic, so wouldn't worry about him for next year, so to speak, but... As for Rio Ruiz, I would say that he is a pretty likely candidate to be on this team next year. Not not overly, uh, not a huge likelihood of that, but certainly one that's, uh, I would say, at least in the 50-50 range, somewhere in there. He's still only 22 years old, but has a uh, 120 WRC plus in AAA this season. That's over more than 500 plate appearances, which is a significant sample size. He probably wouldn't embarrass himself in the big leagues right now, and even that, you know, with a, with a full winner, full offseason, full spring training to kind of work through some more stuff. You'd expect that Ruiz could be a functional, capable third baseman at a very, very cheap cost next year. Um, for me, I think it's uh, pretty uh, pretty likely that the Braves at least entertain signing a third baseman in the offseason. You've heard a guy like Mar- Martin Prado mention. This, this, this question specifically mentioned a young player, but most, most young players are not really available in free agency. It's more of an old man's game. You know, the trade candidates are always interesting to try to pin down, but in terms of free agency, it's mostly older guys. I think that uh, Ruiz has a good, as good of a chance as anybody to start the season next year as the starting third baseman for the Atlanta Braves. Um, you know, he's not going to be very—he's not going to be an exceptional third baseman right away. I think it's pretty safe to assume that he'll be league average or worse at third base. But the the point of that would be to a get him, uh, you know, get, get him some experience on a team that probably isn't going to be competing for the World Series. And B, he's very, very cheap, um, you know, talking about less than a million dollars if you promoted him next year to be playing that position. Uh, you, all, you still have Adonis Garcia, who's a guy who is not fantastic by any stretch, but if you sort of platooned Ruiz and Garcia potentially at third base, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, your offensive production would, would be likely better than it has been this year at the position. And Ruiz is a much better defender than a guy like, Gar- like Garcia has been at third base. So... There are options. There's also the stopgap option. There's the Gordon Beckham-ish, you know, the sort of just veteran short-term guy option that I'm sure the Braves will explore, even if it's just to sign a guy for one year and flip him by the deadline like they're sort of famous for doing recently under under copy in this regime. 
Ruiz does have a chance, I think, to make the team. But, um, you know, starting is a difficult projection to say he's going to start in 2017, but he has a much, much higher chance than Demerit. And I think uh, given the amount of options possible out there, I think Ruiz, uh, you know, individually has one of the higher likelihoods of beginning the season on the Major League team. Uh, the last question I got actually goes sort of hand-in-hand hand with the previous one about Demerit and Ruiz, and that uh, it comes from at the man Pitt on Twitter. He asks, uh, if, if available, should the Braves offer Justin Turner a large free agent contract in the neighborhood of five years for $100-plus million? Uh, if you don't know about who Justin Turner is, uh, he's a 31-year-old third baseman for the Dodgers who's kind of been ripping the cover off the ball for about two and a half seasons now. Um, sort of out of nowhere. Before that, he didn't really do much. He's been a three or four win player in each of those past three seasons. He has real power with a slugging percentage of about 500 in all, each of those three years. Not a huge home run guy, although this year is uh, over 20 in the home run category for the first time in his career. Sort of a late career resurgence from a guy. So almost came out of nowhere. Turner was a uh, not you know not a huge name, but certainly somebody that was sort of bouncing around, but has landed uh, and really prospered over the last couple of seasons. I think the price tag that you mentioned there um, is kind of what I will be afraid of in handing out a free agent deal to really most people. And that Turner is a guy who I think he's pretty pretty safe in years you know one two maybe three. Uh, so if you can get him to uh, actually commit to a contract that was much shorter than five years, that would be really really nice for a guy like Turner. But the nature of the free agent market is that he's probably going to be able to get a four or five year deal at this kind of money from somebody somewhere who's desperate for a bat. I don't want the Braves to be that team if it's really five years and a hundred plus million. This is one of the reasons why I think you hear uh, the name of Martin Prado, who I just mentioned in the previous question, is that Prado has that you know that history in Atlanta with the organization, that uh, history to the point where you could at least entertain a potentially lower asking price um, than one that Turner is going to be. Uh, looking for for his you know his, his really really his one huge deal as a free agent considering the, his recent production. Um, Prado is a guy who's made some money in his career. Uh, is a little bit you know a little bit more under the radar than Turner. I think Turner's going to get top billing in terms of free agency. So Prado can kind of fly under the radar. He might get more money elsewhere. Maybe he'll be interested in taking sort of a hometown discount to come back to Atlanta on a shorter term deal. And with Prado, you get that, that positional value. The Turner could also bring it if you wanted him to, but Prado could be a guy who bounces around the diamond, plays a little bit uh, at places outside of third base. I think if you paid him real money, like they would almost ha- almost certainly have to do, you have to kind of pencil in either Prado or Turner as your third baseman really every day to justify that kind of investment. But uh, the, you know, the moral story is I don't want any part of a five-year $100 million deal for Justin Turner, but if it came at a uh, shorter duration, I would be interested, even though it kind of scares me off that he'll be 32 years old next year and that there's really only a, th- a two-and-a-half, three-year track record. Those are the kind of guys that can really fall off a cliff in a hurry if you don't uh, you know, kind of monitor their progress and figure out why they are uh, suddenly doing what they're doing versus what they used to do in a previous life. That's going to wrap things up for today. I know this is a shorter episode than most, uh, but you have to understand that I'm the one talking by myself. It's a little bit more challenging to uh, lengthen it out. I want to thank everybody um, for submitting questions. I apologize if I didn't get to everybody. There were some that I'm sure came in later after I pulled this uh, off of uh, Twitter and Facebook, all that stuff. So thank you for submitting to uh, this podcast. If you want to ever have your question answered, please just fire away. We'll get to as many as we possibly can. I have a... uh, 
something of a working document of some more of these that we'll get to in the future, so I appreciate that. I want to wrap up also with a plug of last week's show. I had Joe Lucia on from The Comeback and Awful Announcing. He's a fantastic guest. You want to go listen to that podcast if you haven't already. It's a more traditional for this uh, for this form, a little bit longer. Uh, and really just me and him going back and forth about a myriad of issues. Joe is very, very smart. It's sort of an OG Braves blogger. I think he could describe himself as during that podcast. So please go uh, go back and listen to that one and all of our podcasts. You'll want to subscribe to the podcast as well on iTunes. That's the easiest and fastest way to get the podcast. If I post one on a Sunday night, you don't want to wait till Monday morning. You could certainly get that. Um, just drop right in your feed if you subscribe. And if you do that, also please leave us a five-star review. That can really help the podcast to grow. Uh, get me some uh, more interest, some more eyeballs, potentially some better guests, some more high-profile guests, potentially, if they want to see that the uh, podcast is growing and want to be a part of it. So uh, please, it can, it can only help us to uh, send that kind of, uh, of a review, that positive feedback for us. And again, guys, thank you so much for listening. The podcast has come a long way, over 30 episodes, and it's going to be uh, growing as a result of you guys listening. So I really appreciate it, and uh, be sure to stay tuned for next